For joining us today, we are um, well on our way through a series uh, called The Scriptural Stations of the Cross, exploring uh, Jesus' journey to that cross on Calvary and, uh, and moving through, obviously, to the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And um, uh, it's been a, a really beautiful journey. Um, you know, I've been um, rereading The Lord of the Rings, um, and of uh, it's the third time I've read them. <laughs> nerd, nerd alert! Uh, third time I read the book, and um, really enjoying it because uh, last time I read it was before all the movies came out. So I've been reading, kind of working through The Lord of the Rings again, and um, and because I've read it twice earlier, <laughs> nerd alert, uh, and because I've also watched the movies like a lot. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's really interesting reading it because I'm like, man, I'm so familiar with the like the the arc of the story, the meta narrative, like the you know the, the big story that I'm finding there's so much more interesting beauty and detail and uh, in, in the writing. Uh, you know, I'm a bit older um, and I've gone through a bit more life, and uh, I'm finding it such a, a richer experience. It's probably more enjoyable reading it the third time after reading it twice before <laughs> and watching the movies <laughs> a whole lot. Uh, it's probably more enjoyable for me because of that, that journey I've taken to get to really know the story. And I feel like it's the same with Easter. I feel like for most of us, we've gone through this journey before, but every time you cycle through the story of Easter, it's got something more to show us, something more to reveal to us. There's something uh, rich to discover. So let's recap the story that we've been exploring so far. Jesus, uh, and this is again, Ryan set me up for this brilliantly last week. Um, this is the story of the coronation of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe. This is how he is enthroned. And uh, so it begins with him turning up um, on a donkey into Jerusalem, uh, this fulfillment of this great prophecy in Zechariah 9, that the king would come on a donkey, which immediately begins to set you uh, up for, uh, you know, raising a few question marks. Like, this doesn't look like coming in military conquest to, to take the throne and to overthrow the oppressors. This looks a lot more humble, a lot different than we are expecting. We lose some of that because we know the story so well, but you've... But the stories, every step is shocking. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and also in this moment, he goes to the temple, and it's like he comes up to the like he's like, "This is the, my father's house, and it's meant to be a house of prayer. Like it's meant to be this place where you meet with your heavenly Father, and He meets with you. And instead, you've turned it into this economic thing, and He overturns the tables, and it's like, no, we're going to sort this out. Uh, and then he goes and has his Passover meal, the Last Supper. And, uh, and once more, he's tapping into the rich story of the Israelite people because they are, you know, they're about to be liberated from slavery again, but this time from the slavery of sin, of sin and death. And he is going to be the Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world. There's so much going on here. It's so cool. Uh, and then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's seeking God because he knows he needs strength. And the humanity of Jesus is on full display here as he wrestles with what he knows he's called to do. And yet, Ultimately, he yields to his father and trusts in him. And then uh, he, he has this whole kind of um, bizarre farce of a corp in both the Jewish system and the Roman system before ultimately being sentenced to death by crucifixion. As Jen beautifully said last week, Barabbas goes free and, and uh, Jesus is condemned. The sinful one is set free and the innocent one is condemned to pay the price. Again, all the imagery, all the layers that are going on here in this story so far. Uh, N.T. Wright 
says it beautiful in his commentary on what's happening. He says, The greatest legal system of the world represented in the Roman Empire and the most noble religion come together in the centre of the world as Jerusalem was considered at that time and at the centre of history. And together they blunder and stumble into an act so wicked, so unjust, so unnecessary and so indicative of their own moral bankruptcy that before anything more is said, we can already draw the correct conclusion from these narratives. The man at the centre of the story was indeed dying for the sins of the world. But even, even when we know that meta-narrative of like these events, you've got to zoom out a bit to grasp uh, the, the, the fullness of what's going on here because the Bible begins with a good God creating a good world with people made in His image who were themselves good. So you've got to remember, folks, the story doesn't start with us being dirty, rotten sinners. We get there real quick, but we, the, the beginning is that we are created in the image of God and we're good and we're in communion with God and we're called in the, in the beautiful just fraction of the beginning of the Bible. It's like, oh, this is going so well. And it's like, you know, uh, commune with God. We see God at one point walking in the cool of the evening going, where are you guys? This is after they'd fallen, which would indicate he liked going for walks in that lovely sunset kind of moment and just hanging with his his created humans, you know, let's hang out. And of course, the hiding. Uh, but, but, but before that, it was like communion with God, and they uh, were called to steward the world and steward creation and reflect God's glory. And then, uh, and then uh, but you know, he created uh, us with true, true freedom to reject or to love, because love has to be a choice. Love has to be a choice. There's freedom. And so we, we, you know the story. We walked away. We broke God's heart. We left the goodness. We left the holiness. Death enters into the story. Sin enters the story. And ultimately, sin is inflicting pain on ourselves or others. It hurts. And Easter is the climax of the story, of the lengths God will go to to bring us home. Humans are undeserving of this. And, uh, but God is never, nevertheless in love with us. How cool is that? Like, we don't, we don't deserve it. And yet God's like, I still love you. And so I'm going to pursue you when you can see that all the way through uh, the story and it reaches its climax. And, and the motive for this, the 100% motive for this is love. It's just like, that's it. Like, God is love, 1 John says. Like that, that is the, the, most, the most climactic statement of theology ever made about the nature of God. God is love. That's who He is in His essence. Before the creation of the world, He was love because He's Trinity. And so there's this love, like that's who He is. Before any of the other attributes of God manifest themselves, He is love. And love is, is, is like the, 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 the foundation for this whole story. He loves us so much, He's just going to keep pursuing us. He's going to keep chasing us, and He will do everything to bring us home. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. We love because He first loved us. Like Our love, our response to God this morning is simply a response to His love. He's love. It's so cool. Now, uh, the cross is interesting. It's like, why did Jesus have to go through this? Like, why? Did, and Jesus, there's, there's a couple of times where Jesus speaks to a crowd and says, this is going to happen, I'm going to be crucified. And in one time in John 20, verse 27 to 33, Jesus unpacks why, uh, oh, sorry, I'm playing um, fight games with Ian here, um, why this is happening. And he says this in John 20 to 27, 33, he says, now my soul is troubled. Now, 
oh, it's so hard for us to remember that this is God saying this. Like God has stepped in to hit the world. Like that's hardcore. That's, that's why Advent's so exciting as we hit Christmas. It's like he so loved us, he came into the world. So God is, is there and he's coming in the flesh. He's fully human, he's fully God. He's, and he's, then he's like, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, which he does actually say in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven uh, saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd was there and they heard it. And they said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now here's why the cross, this is why the cross. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So Jesus says, this is why I'm going to die. And he said, and there's three reasons here. I, I, I will judge the world. It will judge the world. It will cast out the ruler of the world and it will draw the whole world to him. And so this, this is very important for us to understand as we head into Easter. The cross of Christ pronounces judgment on the basic arrangement of the world. The print, this is from Brian's arm. The principalities and powers, the rich and the powerful, the structures they represent and the spirit generated by them claim they have the right to rule the world because they are wise and just. But the cross exposes the principalities as, and the powers as neither wise nor just, but simply greedy for wealth and power. The cross judges the system of the world as capable of unimaginable crimes. Like, man, it judges, it's like, this is like, the, we human beings can sink to this. We can sink to doing this to other people. We can sink to doing this to an innocent person. The cross judges the world. It exposes the principalities and powers that lead an innocent man to be crucified on a cross. The cross also drives out the ruler of this world, Satan. The Satan, the accuser, unites people around the practice of scapegoating a vilified other. Let's, do it. Let's blame Jesus for all of this. Let's take him down. But the cross exposes scapegoating for what it is, the lynching of an innocent victim. Where the satanic scapegoat mechanism is exposed, the Satan is eventually cast out, and the cross is the ultimate expose of scapegoating. And lastly, the cross refounds the world. When we see Jesus lifted up on the cross, he says, I'm going to, uh, what does he say there? I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. When the cross, when we see Jesus lifted up on that cross, perfectly displaying the love of God by forgiving the sin of the world, we find the place where human society is reorganized. Instead of a world organized around an axis of power enforced by violence, we discover a world organized around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. As we gaze long upon the sacred mystery of Christ crucified, we find ourselves being drawn into the saving orbit of love and forgiveness. That is stunning. This is why, Lord, would you give us this revelation this morning, right? That God is love. And the ultimate expression of that is that the God of the universe would go on that cross and he would forgive and he would extend love and mercy. That is, is extraordinary. And so let's continue our story in terms of these stations. As Jesus picks up, this is the coronation of Jesus, right? Jesus is coronated king. 
and he's coronated king. Um, and, and instead of cheering, he gets insulted. His crown is made up of thorns. His scepter is a reed. And he's just mocked. And his procession is to carry his cross through town. And the throne will be that very cross. It's awful. It's horrendous. It's scandalous. This is how God coronates himself as king of kings and lord of lords. And as he does this, uh, in Matthew 27 verse 32, we come across this station of the the cross. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. This is a beautiful moment on lots of levels. Um, there are times we need people to help us, and God and Jesus was not beyond the need of help from others. Again, every, every single bit of the story is just so freakily, scandalously humble, it should move us to our core. This is, the, this is the God we worship and follow. He's so humble. And he's like, now, there's a reason he can't continue. Like, the beating and the whipping that Jesus went through before he picked up his cross was, uh, was referred to at times by the Romans as a half death. It's like, you know, some of, some of you, many of you may have watched The Passion of the Christ. I've only seen it once. I couldn't, I couldn't watch it again if I if paid me a million bucks. It was just too full on. Um, but there's that reality of the physical brutality of what Jesus went through. And so there's a reason why Jesus can't continue to carry his cross. He just doesn't have it in him to do so. He is already on the edge of human survival. And, uh, and so there's this man, Simon, um, in Matthew's, in, in other translations, it says he felt compelled to help Jesus. And uh, Luke's account, it says he was forced to. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, this man carries Jesus' cross for him. Um, and he's from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya. And uh, there's an amazing book, uh, by recent, recent book, an outstanding New Testament scholar called Esau McCauley called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. <laughs> um, and uh, phenomenal uh, work uh, about uh, an African, and he's an African-American scholar, look, look going like, as we read the Bible, um, you know, we see the Bible differently. And all of us from our different cultures and different worldview, different experiences, will see the Bible differently. But one of the things he points out is just how beautiful it is that this African, <laughs> and it's like, we notice this. He says the African-American community noticed this. Oh, there's an African that comes, and he's the person that comes and helps Jesus carry the cross. He's honoured. One might even think that God might have known some of the pain that the African community would go through in uh, future generations, and he sticks these, this person in the middle of the story as a person of honour. And it drives, again, home that point that he, he, had to, uh, he needed help. And the reality is that we um, are a community where, uh, at times, we get to help others, and at times, we are the people that have to be helped. Uh, Blair is normally the person that helps others. <laughs> he loves helping others. He'll go be an extra mile. And for a season, it's been a joy to help him, to serve him, to care for him. And, uh, and it's tougher normally to receive the help than to be the person giving the help. Uh, and, uh, you know, many times in our journey, uh, I've been just so moved. I mean, the church is at its best. We're a community that serves. Christianity is not a solo project that you do on your own. It's in community together. And so the, I love, I love, I get this beautiful perspective as the pastor of this church to see the weaving of people helping that person and that person. And there's all of this going on. And me and Jen have gone through that many times in our life where, the, where a lot of the time we're helping. Uh, and then there are times where we just needed people to help us. 
And uh, well, I was talking to Jen, I was like, you know, what's a good ex- example of that? And we've got so many. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, probably um, one of the most beautiful for us, we, we lost our first baby through miscarriage. And, um, and some of you guys will know how painful that can be. And um, we were heartbroken. And, and in true Sam and Jen fashion, we didn't wait till the 12-week mark for that scan to, um, to you know, tell everyone about the fact we were pregnant. We told everyone real soon, <laughs> which... Well, in hindsight, I could see why you wait a little bit because that was pretty painful. Had to tell a lot of people that we had lost the baby, but um, but man, we we're just surrounded by love. You know, we we're grieving, and um, and it's a it's a it's a situation you should grieve. You know, I think back in the day, my parents were like, "Oh, you just ignore," you know, sort of. So no, you got to grieve that. That's that's a that's very much a, a life that you were hoping to baby you're hoping to hold that you can't. And, so we grieved, and but our um, our lounge was filled with flowers, and we had um, you know our pastors came around and prayed for us, and all our friends turned up, and it was just like oh we were just carried, you know we were just carried during that season of grief for us, and um, and we've gone through that many 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 times, um, and so uh, in this beautiful station, uh, we are invited to pause and to remember that um, that we don't do this on our own, and again. Um, the Bible's filled with these stories. Again, I'm quoting Brian Zander a lot because I'm reading the most incredible Lent devotion by him called Jesus Unvarnished. And he says in, uh, on this station, he says, Christianity is not a solo project. We can't do it alone. David couldn't do it by himself. Elijah couldn't do it by himself. And even Jesus couldn't do it by himself. And you can't do it by yourself. Some days we have the honour of being Simon of Cyrene and helping a brother or sister carry their cross when it has become too much for them. Uh, the days we are the one in need of Simon of Cyrene. Whether we are helping or being helped, it's all the grace of God. Hallelujah. And can I just uh, finish this point by saying, the Bible calls us to share each other's burdens. That's what church is meant to be. But can I just say this? It's very difficult to share your burden if you don't share it. And so there's no point getting resentful that the church isn't supporting you or that your community of faith aren't supporting you if you haven't expressed your need for that support. It, I know you've got to eat a bit of humble pie when you do that, you know, and it's everyone's favourite pie, not. You know, it's like, but actually when you're going through stuff, please let us know. Please let us know. Because it's such, it's, it breaks my heart when I find out later that people we navigating through stuff and it's like we had no idea of how tough it had been for them. We can't do everything. We're, we're, we're a family and we've, we find but we'd love to do our best to support you through all of that. And so now we move on to the cross. The cross uh, is something that we're quite familiar with in our culture, and it's lost a lot of its horror. We see a lot of it on church buildings, obviously. We've got a cross here. Artwork, we wear it around our necks. We put it on hot cross buns, um, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, the cross is a horrific tool of execution, obviously. It's a gruesome method of execution. But Fleming Rutledge says this in her book on the cross. She says, everybody has seen crucified men and, um, uh, and uh, everyone had, has seen crucified men along the roadsides of the Roman Empire. Everyone knew what it looked like, smelled like, sounded like, the horrific sight of completely naked men in agony, the smell and sight of their bodily functions taking place in full view of all the sounds of their groans and the laboured breathing going on for hours and in some cases day. Perhaps worst of all is the fact that no one cared. But this is a brutal form of execution uh, and it's a brutal world uh, in which uh, we find uh, that ancient Near Eastern culture there was, was brutal and, uh, and this form of execution was there to make sure the population stayed compliant to the rule of Caesar. 
It was kind of like, hey, you know, if, uh, if you want to um, try and get rid of Roman occupation, this will be what will happen to you. We will crucify you and everyone will be able to see it. Um, and so it's horrible to even contemplate, but the cross is the perfect picture of the worst we can do as humans. The word, uh, English word excruciating comes from the worst pain that we can experience, right? And again, it finds its roots in this idea of the cross. Um, and the key thing in all of this is that um, we've got to remember who Jesus is for the full impact of the cross to really hit us as we go into Easter. Because otherwise what happens is we go, you know, it's like reading horrible Wikipedia pages or, you know, where you're like, oh no, you got to have some horrible rabbit warren about something that's a bit gruesome or something, you know. Let's have a look at the effects of, you know, of, of bad infected pimples. And then you kind of go down, this sick part of you starts kind of looking at the YouTube videos of, you know, ginormous things getting squeezed or whatever. And it's like, the, the danger is that we can kind of have this voyeurism into a horrible practice and that's it. Because this wasn't an unusual thing to happen in this time. And, um, and Jesus wasn't the only person to be crucified. So the danger is that we can just be horror, horrified that it even happened, right? But we've got to remember about who it happened to. And this is where every single, every single point on Easter, this journey through to the cross, every point, the key thing that we've got to keep coming back to is the resurrection of Jesus, and one of my favourite scriptures is, Rome, is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. It says this, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. How cool is that? If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I love that that's in our holy book. I love that that's in the Bible, that black and white. Everything is centred around the resurrection because if the resurrection happened, then Jesus is who He says He is. He's indeed God that has come to redeem and restore all things. Forgiveness is possible. Mercy is possible. His love is true if it's God who has come in Jesus to, do, to, to take upon Himself all of this horrible stuff. But if not, it's just another poor Jewish dude who did the wrong thing, said the wrong things and paid the price for it in a very brutal world. The, the resurrection is key. Absolutely key. And we're going to talk about the resurrection at our Easter camp. But I believe in the resurrection. I believe this is the foundation of our faith. And I believe in the resurrection for all sorts of reasons. And I talk about this every single Easter Sunday that we go through. I believe that He rose again. What would cause such a radical change in the early disciples to go from a scared bunch of Muppets to people willing to die? for what they'd seen. What would change Paul? And not only that, the Holy Spirit poured out so that the risen Jesus is in the room mysteriously in this very moment. I have experienced His presence. I believe that He rose again. But if He rose again, then what happened here is unbelievable. It's horrific. It, the links that God would go to, that, that the, the very create creatures He created, would be, would, would it be impossible that they could kill their Creator. If that's the case, we cannot deny how twisted we've become. The sin, the pain, the sickness and depravity of the cosmos bears down on Jesus. He picks up that cross. He picks up that cross and carries it because of love. Because of love. Because of love, He picks up that cross. Because for you and me, He's like, I want to see you restored. I want you to come home. I want you to know what I'm really like. And this Oh, this, I was barely holding it together in the cafe this week when I was prepping this. 
Greg Boyd says this, now we understand how God's righteousness was perfectly revealed in his becoming a judged criminal on our behalf. For God's righteousness is simply the justice of his unsurpassable love. Now we understand how God's power was most perfectly displayed in his allowing himself to be crucified at the hands of sinners. For God's power is simply the power of his love. Now we understand how God's glory was most perfectly revealed in the utter shame of the crucified Messiah. For God's glory is most fundamentally the radiance of his incomprehensible love. And now we understand how God's beauty is most perfectly revealed in the horror of the executed son. For God's beauty is nothing other than the magnificence of his love put on display. It's love, it's love, it's love, it's love. This is what the cross reveals, the love of God for you and for me. Hallelujah. And all we have to do is come and receive it. The Bible helps us to see what's really playing out here. Because... The Gospels like give the account of what's going on. But it's like, man, what does this mean for you and me? Like what's actually, like the coronation of the king looks like that and it's just raw and horrific and, 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 and looks so weak and broken and like a massive failure and on this innocent man. Like how does this, and it's interesting in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is not exploring just what's going to happen. There's a small element of that at the end of Revelation. Uh, but much of the book of Revelation is exploring what is actually happening in the church at that very time. And there are moments that explore things like the cross. So in Revelation chapter 5, we see what's happening on that cross. And it says this. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now, some of you guys are already like, man, what the heck is this guy smoking? If you're new to church, you're like, man, this makes no sense. Bear with me here. There's, a little, there's not just a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. Everything is symbolism. Right, so you have to like, this is why literal interpretations of, of Revelation are going to get you in a very bad theological place very quickly uh, because it's all symbolism. Uh, and, but then listen to this. They sang, uh, each one had a, uh, this is so beautiful. Uh, when, that, when he had taken the scroll, the 24 elders, the creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. The Lamb represents Jesus, of course. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayer of God's people. Side tangent real quick. Every prayer that you pray to God is poured out like incense before Him. That, I love that. I'm like, so many of my prayers don't feel like they've been answered. And I'm like, why haven't you done that? But at the end of the day, when I, get, when I read that, I'm like, I don't really care if, as long as it's been poured out before you like incense, as long as you heard it, I'm good with that. Anyway, moving on. And then they begin to worship and singing this new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests and to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. 
And so John has this vision and he sees in the heavenly realms saying, who is worthy, who is worthy to open up the scroll to to, to welcome us in? And then we see this lamb that was slain and they're like, you are the one that's worthy. And uh, and then they begin to worship him. And listen, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000 and they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever and ever. And the, and the living creature said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshipped. Like in the heavenly realm, when Jesus went through this, there's this sense of awe like the King has been coronated. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the creator of the universe. And to him we worship because he has revealed the love of God and he's brought the people home. Hallelujah. You are worthy. And they give him, and I love that line, everything in them, like everything in them, they worship him. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. The The cross is horrific. It's what we can do. It's the depths we can sink to. But the cross is also incredibly beautiful. It's both the, the incredible crescendo of human sin, but it's also the, the, the incredible apex of God's divine grace. And that's why it's beautiful. That's why it's beautiful. It's beautiful because this is the place, this is the place where all of our sin and brokenness is, is absorbed, forgiven, and transformed into reconciliation where we can come home to our Heavenly Father, where we can run home and we can feel His embrace. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke's going to unpack some of these next week. This, that's what Jesus was saying on that cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He was come reconciling the world. We can experience the free gift of grace. We can experience the love of God. And you know, I've said this many times. All we have to do is come. All we have to have, and this is the chip. We're so proud. We're so self-contained. We want God bolted on the side. We, I don't know. You know, we're so, but... He, keep, he just keeps standing there saying, would you come and just receive? You don't have to do anything more than come and receive the free gift of my love. Come, receive the free gift. Come, receive the forgiveness. Come, drink in the mercy. Come home. Come, receive the love of God. And in response, the only thing we could do is join in with the sound of heaven and worship to the King of Kings to come into this place where we just adore him and thank him and worship him. And, uh, and declare that he is indeed the king. He is indeed the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that he has been coronated. And so this morning I want to invite you, will you, um, this is so 1990s and cheesy, but will you let God be king in your life? King in your heart, king in your life? Will he reign on the throne of your life? Would you, would you do that this morning? He, he will not force, him, he doesn't, like by now you should have realised he comes on the donkey. He's the Passover lamb. He lets people help him. He's, he's, he's so humble in heart. He will not force anything upon you. That's not his way. It's still a choice. Love is still a choice. Will you choose this morning to come to the cross?